Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Ken is helping us think through the Trinity. This is part two of two. And Ken, uh, we can never exhaust this topic, right? That's that's correct. Uh, Joe, the, the Trinity is a challenging doctrine, but it is right at the heart of historic Christianity. And uh, I, I think it's interesting. In fact, let me say this, and we'll, we'll explore a lot of these ideas. It's interesting to me that all of the cults, now, um, that sounds like a mean word, but when I was at the Christian Research Institute working with the original Bible answer man, Walter Martin, he had that book, The Kingdom of the Cults. But when he told a group a cult, it wasn't necessarily sociological, you know, manipulation, controlling, etc. He was using it in a doctrinal or theological that they had they had counterfeit doctrinal ideas. Now you could also be a cult sociologically. David Koresh, for example, um, was I think a cult in both sense. But uh, what's interesting to me is all of the heretical sects, all of the new religious movements of the 19th century in America, they all deny the Trinity and they deny salvation by grace. I think the reason is, is because those two are so intimately connected. It is the Trinity that has a God of love and a God of grace. So you're exactly right. Uh, you can't get over the Trinity and, uh, I like what Pelican said to David Neff, the former editor of Christianity Today, you evangelicals talk too much about Jesus, but you don't think enough about the Trinity. And I think that's right. Remember when we present Jesus, Jesus has a relationship to the Spirit, the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father. So uh, you can't have the Trinity, uh, can't have Jesus without the Trinity. Yeah. And just to uh, highlight the practical importance of this doctrine, you talked about your experience with a Jehovah's Witness in the last podcast, uh, where uh, you weren't quite ready for that person. You're you're playing basketball uh, with them and, and they beat you uh, not only on the court, but off the court as well. And you got you got ready for the next round. I guess the lesson I got from that, Ken, is Studying theology can help improve your athletic ability. Would that be right? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, I was, I don't know, I was, I don't know if I read more, I spent more hours reading scripture or I spent more hours trying to improve my jump shot. But um, yeah, he was a, he was an interesting fellow and uh, he was, he was very smart and he was, he had a very clear understanding of the watchtower and he understood scripture in accord with their ways of thinking. And, and that first conversation, I, I drove home kind of, you know, my tail between my legs and I thought I wasn't ready. And, uh, you know, so I want to encourage people, um, you know, even the great Walter Martin, who had such a masterful way of presenting, uh historic christianity to new religious movements uh he had a tough time although i will tell you a story um walter was he he was general Patton of apologetics he used to go down to the watchtower 
organization in New York and knock on their door and witness to them about the Trinity. And I thought, <laughs> I have to work for this man. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've always admired uh, Walter's uh, strength and his, uh, you know, his tenacity. And again, I think he is more like Patton. Uh, maybe my new boss, well, Hugh Ross, actually, Hugh's been my boss a lot longer than uh, Walter was my boss. I think uh, I think Hugh's more like General Bradley. If you think of World War II, Bradley was very competent and but but always defecting, kind of humble, whereas Walter was pounding on the table and you know telling us to go into battle, march into the the uh, Battle of the Bulge. Okay, well, enough of that. Let's talk a bit more about the Trinity. And again, we're using the Belgic Confession, which is a great confession of faith. It's the Reformed uh, Confession of Faith, uh, uh, 1561. But we could do the same thing with the Anglican 39 Articles, or we could shift to the Presbyterian Westminster Confession, or we could pick up the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, or the Baptist or the Methodist Historic Confessions, and we'll get the Trinity. This shows the unity, how deeply influential it is uh, in Western Christendom among Protestants. But of course, we could go back in Catholic sources and Orthodox sources uh, and get the Trinity as well. So we're giving it a historical uh, context. And the truth of the matter is that these confessions of faith um, they're longer than the creeds; they're more detailed. And remember that. These confessions, Belgic, 39 Articles, Westminster, Augsburg, Baptist, Methodist, these are written by some of the finest theologians of the day and some of the finest theologians of any day. So we, we can learn from them. Now, what I want to do in light of, and I hope many of you have heard the first pro program, I want to I talk about, I want to put the doctrine of the Trinity in this context, what the Trinity is and what the Trinity isn't. What the Trinity is, and what the Trinity isn't. So the first point I want to make with regard to what the Trinity is, is that there exists only one God. It is just one God. It's monotheism, one divine essence or being. Uh, therefore, we reject polytheism, many gods in general, and tritheism in particular. I do not consider the Latter-day Saints to be a historic Christian body. Why? Because they are tritheists. They have three gods. That doesn't mean there isn't some common ground in historic Christianity and Mormonism. Um, and it doesn't mean that the Mormons are bad people. Um, Mormonism uh, often would share values with Christians. Uh, you could you could be a historic Christian and a Mormon and be opposed to abortion or emphasize the importance of family, etc. Um, but we believe in one God. So there exists only one God, one divine essence or being. We reject polytheism in general, tritheism, three different gods in particular. So that's that's our first point about what the Trinity is. Our second point. The three persons of the Godhead are each fully divine, all sharing equally and fully the one divine essence. Three persons in the Godhead, each fully divine, all sharing equally and fully 
So the Father's not more God than the Son. The Father and the Son are not more God than the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share that one divine essence, fully and equally. No subordination of essence among the persons of the Trinity. No subordination of essence. Now, some would suggest there may be a subordination of role, but not essence. In terms of their being, they're, they're completely equal. Uh, the debate about subordination of role is controversial, but too much for us to talk about at this point. All right, so uh, we've made two points as regard what the Trinity is. A third point, the term person in reference to the Trinity is used in a unique sense. Person within the context of the Trinity, three persons, the word person is used in a unique sense, not as a separate autonomous entity or being. We talked about this last time. Dave raised the question here. Um, typically, when we think of a person, we think of one being, one person. A human being is one being, one person. Dave is a human being. He's one being, one person. Joe is a human being, one being, one person. Ken is a human being, one being, one person. Um, but we're separate persons. The term person in reference to the Trinity is used in a unique sense, not as three separate persons who happen to also be three beings, uh, not autonomous entities or beings. Within the Trinity, there is a we can distinguish the persons, but they have a unity that is unlike any other creatures who connect personhood to their entity. So what I like to say is Christianity is personal. Christianity believes in a personal God like Judaism, and uh, I believe that Islam does as well. But I think it's preferable to say that within Christianity, the triune God is personal and more. Not one God, one person, one God, three persons. Again, I'm going to talk about its importance, but you know, when you think of an analogy, uh, God is, remember what an analogy is, you compare two things and they end up being like and unlike because two things are not exactly the same. Um, I think the Trinity is analogous to a loving human family. Now, again, we'll come back to analogies because they are controversial. Some There are some very good theologians who don't think you should use any analogies at all. I'm not one of them. I I like what Augustine does. Uh, but if we have time, we'll come back to that. So a third point about what the Trinity is, unlike, or fourth point, excuse me, about what the Trinity is, unlike all finite creatures, God possesses plurality of personhood within his infinite being. Uh, and so one God, one person, that's the creature. One God, three persons, that's the creator. And think of a, a sheet of paper with a line right through the middle. And on the bottom of the line is the creature. On Above the line is the creator. And we call that the creature-creator distinction. One of the distinguishing features between the creature and the creator is the creature is one being one person. The creator is one being three persons.
Our fifth point about what the Trinity is, the members of the Trinity are qualitatively equal in attributes, nature, and glory. We worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal. They have the same attributes, the same nature. This is in their divinity. Now, remember the second person of the Trinity, who's equal to the Father and the Spirit, he then takes on a distinct human nature, and he becomes, as the Greeks would say, the theanthropos, theos, God, anthropos, man, he becomes the God-man. He, the second person of the Trinity, has a fully divine nature and a fully human nature, but remains a single person. Now, uh, one more point here, uh, actually uh, two more points uh, as to what the Trinity is. The members of the Godhead are distinct persons and can be distinguished from each other. The Father's not the Son. The Father's not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. So we can distinguish the persons. They're not separate persons in terms of being separate beings like Joe, Dave, and Ken. We can distinguish them, but their person doesn't mean that they're three separate beings or three separate gods. And one more point about what the Trinity is, God's oneness and threeness are in different respects and don't violate each other. Being or nature distinguished from personhood, what's important there is some skeptical people will come along and say, wait, the Trinity, when you say God is one and not one, three and not three, you're committing uh, the violation of the law of non-contradiction. Nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Uh, you know, well, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't. It's formulated in such a way to say that God is one and three in two different ways. He's one in his essence. He's three in his subsistence or personhood. And so we're, he's not at the same time and in the same respect. There's no negation or denial. Now, again, that's controversial, but that's the way the church thought through the Trinity. Now, I want to pause because I want to go into what the Trinity is not, but Dave and Joe, uh, questions or comments or... Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, in just uh, one of the uh, phrases you just quoted, uh, you referred to God's oneness and threeness are not different respects, don't violate each other. And then you have in parentheses, being or nature distinguished from personhood. Now, we believe that Jesus, when he was here on the earth, had two natures. I think that's correct. Yes. He had a divine nature and a human nature. But you are in this sentence equating nature with being. So was Christ two beings, but one person? Or is are we drawing too finite? No. Um the Incarnation says that the second person of the Trinity had a divine nature that he shares fully and equally with the Father and the Spirit. There's only one God, so he's God. He has a divine nature. And yet that divine person took to himself a human nature and became man. Right. So in the Incarnation, we have two different natures. We have a divine nature. We have a human nature. They're in union, and yet 
there are not two persons, there's one person. So Jesus has all of the necessary elements of divinity. He has all of the necessary elements of humanity. He's fully God and fully man. The Chalcedonian formula, the, the Creed of Chalcedon 451. So everything essential to being a human being, Jesus had. Everything to being divine, Jesus had. And yet he was not two people. He was one person. And uh, so if you mean by that, that there was two beings, well, you could say this, you, you could say this, that the Trinity is one what and three who's, but the incarnation is two what's and one who. Okay, that's what I wanted to clarify. You're, you're, you're with me. Yep. Okay. Joe, comments? Questions? No, tracking. Okay. Now, I, I do have a, my other question. Um, when we refer to human beings, as you did a little bit earlier, they are one being, one person. Uh, that's the nature that uh, we have as being people here on this earth, being God's creation. But when a male and a female marry, the scripture refers to them as becoming one. I believe it uses the word one flesh. Is there any sense in which, in some mysterious way, this oneness that is being referred to there is oneness in being? It's a good question, and, and it's a provocative one, and I, I think I can partly answer it, and I'm going to do it this way. I want to go to what may be the most quoted passage in the entire Old Testament. That's a Jewish term. Uh, the Hebrews refer to the Tanakh, the Old Testament. If you go to the Old Testament, you have what is called the Shema. That's the word hear, something you do with your ears, right? You hear. Deuteronomy 6.4 is probably the most quoted passage in the entire Hebrew scriptures, Tanakh, Old Testament. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord is one. Well, Dave, that word one is the same word that's used in the scriptures where it says, and the two will become one flesh. So it's not a mathematical single solitary one. There's some kind of plurality within the one. Now, that gives us a little context of, I think, two points we can we can infer here, that we experience a oneness in marriage that's similar to the oneness that's spoken of in the Shema. And that's why I think we can say that Judaism, uh, the Jewish understanding of God, the, the Jewish understanding of Yahweh, at least in this central passage, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that it's not a single solitary oneness. It's it is a a oneness that does not rule out uh, traditional monotheism. Or I could put it this way: that oneness seems to allow for a plurality within the one. 
Right. And within marriage, you have two people, so you have a plurality, and they become one flesh. I think that there is some kind of analogy I, there. And I also think that this then helps us with Judaism and Christianity. Jews believe in one God. They believe he's one person. They are traditional monotheists. Christianity comes out of Judaism. Jesus, after all, is a Jew. He is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, even though I love Christendom, I have to keep reminding myself that Jesus has a Jewish context. And Jesus' Bible is the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And so, what about that tension? Well, Judaism says God is one being one person. Christianity says God is one being three persons. I would say, but remember that God is revealing himself. And as Christians, we believe that God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, but even more fully in the, in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so, we take exception with our Jewish friends on, on that issue. But yeah. That's the way I would, that's the best way I think I could answer the question, the really good question that you've asked. Joseph, anything on your mind before we look at what the Trinity is not? Go right ahead. Okay, what the Trinity is not, number one, the three persons in the Godhead should not be understood to imply three different beings or gods, for that would divide, that would divide the essence. So, the three persons in the Godhead should not be understood as to imply three different beings, three different gods. There is only one being, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share fully and equally that one divine being. It is a plurality of personhood, not a plurality of being. Not three gods, not tritheism, rather a unique monotheism. Just as we mentioned before, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word one allows for plurality. A plurality within unity. Number two, what the Trinity is not, the unity of God's nature should not be emphasized at the expense or exclusion of the plurality of personhood within God's single essence. You say that again. The unity of God's nature should not be emphasized at the expense or exclusion of the plurality of the personhood within God's single essence. That is, um, it's possible that there is a balancing element here in that God is one and God is three. If you overemphasize the oneness, then the personhood disappears and you have Unitarianism. If you overemphasize the plurality of personhood, then the essence is broken down and divided and you come up with tritheism or three gods. And so the church has argued that you have to look carefully uh, at both the unity and diversity. So the unity of God's nature should not be emphasized at the expense or exclusion of the plurality of persons within God's single nature. You want to want to realize that if I if I um, if I critique if I insist on unity or overemphasize unity, I lose the plurality and I have Unitarianism. Okay? And if I do it the opposite way, if I overemphasize the plurality, I can contract I can take away from the unity and I end up with tritheism. And so 
again, the church is wrestling with these ideas. Third point about what the Trinity is not, what the Trinity is not. The three persons of the Godhead should not be thought of as mere modes or expression of existence. That is, we shouldn't think of a single divine person changing roles, titles, or manifestations. Modalistic religions are rejected for they confound the persons. Uh, modalism has to do with, think of a, think of a play. And think of an actor, a single actor who plays three different roles. Maybe he has a mask in front of his face and he's playing a single role. Then he would step behind a partition and take a new mask. Same being, same person, but now with a different face. And then he may do it again. Modalism modalistic monarchianism, monarch, one ruler, modalistic monarchianism, there's one God, one person, but the person changes forms, roles, titles. Sometimes he appears as father in creation, sometimes the son in redemption, sometimes the spirit on, uh, when, the, when the spirit comes on the church. So modalism is, is out. Uh, it it makes a certain logical sense, but it would mean that the Father died on the cross. It would mean that when Jesus was talking to the Father, he's talking to himself. It would create all kinds of biblical issues. A fourth point about what the Trinity is not, the Trinity doctrine does not teach that the persons within the Godhead came into existence or progressively became divine at any given moment in time. Now, that's an awfully important one. Uh, all Arian-like religions, uh, Arius believed that the Father was God, and he created the Son, and the Son was like an exalted deity, but less than the Father, the highest created being. That's very similar to what the Watchtower says. All Arian-like religions are rejected for they make Christ a creature. So the Trinity doctrine does not teach that the persons within the Godhead came into existence or progressively became divine at a given moment in time. So while the Father begets the subsistence or personhood of the Son, it didn't have a beginning. This is an eternal father-son relationship. And while the spirit proceeds from the father and the son in the Western context of the filioque clause, um, that is an eternal relationship. It's an eternal act. Uh, it didn't have a beginning in time. That's the way God is. Uh, this relationship is eternal. And so the son is... The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. And these are eternal relationships, and they never had a, there was never an act of the will that started this, and it never began in time. Begotten proceeding is different than creating. Okay, number, our fifth criticism, excuse me, our fifth point about what the Trinity is not. The three persons of the Trinity should not be understood as three parts, fractions, or emanations of God. All three persons share equally and fully the one divine essence. 
you know, we, we naturally want to have an analogy, right? Um, and people come up with analogies, you know, maybe, maybe you can slice the apple into three parts. You got one apple, you got three parts. Um, the problem is we shouldn't think of the Trinity as three parts or fractions. The, the spirit is not one third God the son, one third God, the father, one third God, and then you lump them together and they become one. They become fully one. No, um, we have to be careful there because the three persons, we can distinguish them in terms of their personhood or their subsistence, but they each fully and completely share the one divine essence. Analogies are difficult. Some people think we shouldn't do them at all. Um, Augustine is kind of unique. St. Augustine, arguably my favorite thinker outside of the New Testament authors, uh, had a big influence, particularly on Western Christianity. Um, Augustine is not terribly popular in the Eastern Church. They see him as far too pessimistic, uh, original sin, um, and they think he made missteps with the Trinity. That's a lot for another occasion. Uh, but Augustine is big in Western Christendom. I think he's the bridge that brings together Catholics and, and Protestants. Augustine thought there is an opportunity for psychological analogies. And the re here's his reasoning. If human beings are made in the image of God, then he thought that must mean that if we're made in the image of God and God is a trinity, then there must be an element of humanity that is like the trinity. And he came up with the idea of mind, intellect, memory, and will. It's one mind, intellect, memory, and will. Part of the problem, though, is nobody necessarily thinks of the mind in exactly that way. Um, you know, you have all of these analogies that are triple point of water, um, various various analogies. I I like the analogy that God is like and unlike a human family. Uh, the father is the lover. The son is the beloved. The spirit is that is the love that proceeds from the father and the son. Again, it's an analogy. And remember, analogies are always inductive, never deductive. They're never certain. There's always probable. An analogy by nature is like and unlike. Uh, you know, a triangle has is there's a single triangle has three sides. There's a threeness and a oneness. Uh, I think people are always going to want it. How can I frame this in my mind? We have to be careful. And and there are a lot, a lot of people who just disagree with the St. Augustine and they would disagree with me about analogies because I agree with Augustine. Okay. The, um, you know, this Probably. this family notion I think fits well with what we talked about a moment ago of a male and female becoming married, becoming one flesh, and then having a child. Now you have a family. Yeah. And there's a oneness in this family that wouldn't be there had there not been this union between the husband and the wife. I like that, Dave. Um I like that. You know, we're again an analogy is comparing two things and they're not it's not univocal, it's not exactly the same, it's not equivocal, it's not completely different, it's analogical, it's like and unlike.
And mm. I, I think that that's a helpful way. Um, I remember having a discussion with my wife. We were at the uh, Red Lobster one day, and I had just finished a, a, my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. And so I was telling her about some of the chapters, and I told her about some of the analogies that it, that Irenaeus and Augustine came up with. And I remember Irenaeus came up with this analogy, this picture. He said, uh, the son and the spirit are the father's right and left hands. So the analogy is the father creates the world, but how does he do it? He creates with his hands. The right hand is the son. The left hand is the Holy Spirit. I said, what'd you think of that analogy? She goes, ah, go back to that one about love. I like that a lot better. <laughs> so um, sometimes you have to figure out who am I talking to and what's going to make it more appealing. Okay, so let's go number six, what the Trinity is not. There is no subordination or inferiority of essence among the three persons. Uh, even though the Father begets the Son from all eternity, even though the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity and never, never an act of the will, never began in time, there is no subordination or inferiority of essence, of being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share equally the one divine essence. Now, there could be a subordination in role, but even that is controversial. There's no subordination uh, in essence, there may be in role, but not in essence. They they share fully the one divine essence or being. Now, let me kind of uh, let me kind of bring this together in the sense that um, we can talk about what orthodoxy teaches and what orthodoxy teaches clashes with what heresy teaches. Now, we're Words like cult and heresy, those are terms that people feel deeply offended by. Now, you're in a cult or you're a heretic. People think, man, can't you? That's part of the problem with Christianity. They just, you're always clashing. Um, you're separating, they're, they're alienating. Well, um, I'm a little sympathetic to that. I, I think you want, you want to, convey the message about doctrine and about the opposite of Christian doctrine in a way that is loving and respectful. But, um, you know, contradictions are contradictions. When two ideas negate or deny each other, they can't both be true. So let's look at three errors to avoid, three heresies. The first, tritheism, T-R-I, theism, three gods. Well, that's an overemphasis on God's threeness. If you push the threeness, it affects the oneness, and you end up with three different gods. You you lose the unity of God's one being. By pushing the threeness and plurality, you get three gods. That's tritheism. That's Mormonism. We see that in church history as well. Modalism, overemphasis upon God's oneness. You know, there's one God, one person. The person just changes roles or manifestations or modes of expression. So uh, there you protect the unity at the expense of the plurality, and you end up in Unitarianism, one being one person. 
Now, subordinationism with essence, you reject the equality of the persons. If you push it, if you press that maybe the father is greater than the son or the father and the son are greater than the spirit in terms of their essence, you end up with some kind of subordination. Uh, again, that subordination, in my opinion, about essence is not controversial. I will tell you that it is controversial in terms of subordination of role, and it's just way too complicated for me to even offer a, a statement without leaving you in the in the lurch. Now, um, let me let me ask again, guys, thoughts, reflections that. At this point, I do want to talk a little bit about why I think the Trinity is important, but I don't want to leave what the Trinity is and what it's not, if there's a question in your mind. I think you've been very thorough, Ken. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, importance of the Trinity. Well, the Trinity doctrine reveals who and what God is, one God and three persons. The ancient Christians said, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So it tells us who and what God is. That's important. It's important. God's great work in creation is performed by three members of the Trinity. Creation comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Father's the creator, but the Son, right there in the second verse of Genesis, hovering over the creation, sustaining it. New Testament, Jesus is described as creation, creator. Everything comes from the Father. Everything comes from the Son. The Son and the Holy Spirit function as the Father's co-agents in creation. Maybe tie that to Irenaeus. Irenaeus is the Father has two hands, right? Uh, the Trinity, God's great work of redemption is performed by the three members of the Trinity. Uh, the Father, the first person, sends the Son into the world to offer a propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. That is a sacrifice that both appeases the Father's just wrath against sin and extends the Father's love and mercy by allowing repentant sinners to escape divine judgment. So when we think about redemption, we, we almost exclusively think of it in terms of the Son, and why not? He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He does, on the cross, he offers himself as a substitute, a propitiatory sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, he unites us with God. And so you can't talk about Christianity without talking about the cross. But remember, the Father initiates by sending the Son. And the Holy Spirit, Pentecost, an application of salvation. Uh, so the incarnate son, the second person is able to provide an atonement because he's both God and man. In this case, rather than one what and three who's like the Trinity, in the incarnation, you have two what's and one who. The God-man conquers death, sin, and hell through his glorious resurrection from the dead. Uh, we don't want to leave the Holy Spirit out. Holy Spirit is directly responsible for the repentant sinner's new birth in Christ through regeneration and the believer's life journey of sanctification. A couple of programs before this, we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. 
He's the shy member of the Trinity. He is maybe the unappreciated member of the Trinity, but he shows us, I think, the virtue of humility. Um, and the spirit is involved, and the spirit's not a radar beam. He's not just a power or force. He has power and he has force, but he is a personal agent. He is a personal divine person right? Like the Son and the Father are divine persons. Um, and so to underscore that, again, the importance of the Trinity, salvation is from the Father. He initiates it. It's accomplished by the Son. He on the cross says, Taltelestai, it is finished. And the Holy Spirit at Pentecost applies it. Our new birth uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing the message about Christ, Romans 10, 17. The Spirit is involved in giving us a new birth. Without the Trinity, there's no gospel. In fact, there's no Christianity at all, no historic Christianity at all. Bruce Milne, I love his book. Um, uh, he has a, a book entitled Know the Truth. And Know the Truth was our textbook at Concordia University in one of our doctrinal classes when I was an undergraduate student. I received my bachelor's degree from Concordia University in Irvine. In those days, it was called Christ College, Irvine. Then long after I graduated, they changed all the names of the Missouri Synod colleges to Concordia. So it's Concordia University, Irvine. It's a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, college, liberal arts college. And um, in my doctrine class with professor Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, a very distinguished theologian in Missouri Synod Lutheran tradition, peers on the White Horse Inn with Michael Horton, Kim Riddlebogger, um, uh, a very uh, engaging theologian. Um, he used Bruce Milne's book, Know the Truth, and that had such a big impact on me that I think when you look at my book, um, without a doubt, uh, you can see a Milne influence there. Um, I intended to make my book, uh, without a doubt, both a doctrinal and apologetic. So you can read it and get a lot of doctrine out of it. You can read it and get a lot of apologetics out of it. You, it's like a systematic theology. But it also has that apologetic emphasis. Milne influenced me in, in that. And, and of course, uh, as Christians, none of us are original. Um, when we write books about the Trinity, we, we're sitting on the, you know, the shoulders of giants. Um, you know, that's why I think, that's why I think church history is so critical in that kind of context. So, that's a lot. And uh, but there's some good places you can you can go to. Um, I mentioned my book without a doubt. I have a, a chapter on the Trinity uh, where I cover a lot of this stuff in my book, A World of Difference, which is a worldview book. I also have a section on the Trinity in my latest book, Christianity Cross-Examined, chapter five. I have a chapter on uh, mystery. 
And I raised the question, aren't mysteries, aren't Christian mysteries just contradictions? And I spend a lot of time talking about the Trinity being a mystery, but not a contradiction. And then another book, um, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, uh, not, a, not a long book, a kind of a primer, but very engaging. I, that's one of the, it's one of the books that engaged my thinking about the Trinity a lot. Uh, take a look at that. Uh, so, and in our last program, I mentioned Robert Bowman's book, Why You Should Believe in the Trinity. That discusses the Trinity in relationship to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I mentioned Peter Toon, who is one of my favorite contemporary theologian, Anglican theologian, died way too young. Um, his book, uh, Our Triune God, Our Triune God, looks a lot at scripture. So guys, though, that's some sources. And uh, I love the Trinity. I love the doctrine of the Trinity. I love the triune God. The triune God is a God of love. Um, the triune God is the God that created the cosmos and redeemed us. And um, I find the Trinity to be to be so beautiful and so so true and and good. And um, uh, um, I want to encourage people. I I do it at RTB. I try to encourage people to to speak to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. In my Anglican church, we do things similar to what I did as a Catholic. We make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Catholics make the sign of the cross. Orthodox do. Uh, Lutherans sometimes do. Anglicans do. Um, I like to begin with uh, the Trinity. So, guys, that's uh, we covered all. We've covered that before, but it's so important. You have to keep coming back to it. Mm -hmm. As I had said to you earlier, I shared some of these things with my Sunday school class, and they just really loved it. Just uh, going through these things. And it also gave me an opportunity to personalize it, where I could share some of my own experiences, say, in the case that uh, I shared. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, and how does that work? And uh, so we just had a great discussion. Well, very good, Dave. You um, you have a unique teaching ministry, and uh, again, one of the things I really admire about you is you're a reader. Um, <laughs> I. I don't want to commit a hasty generalization, but I, I don't know that most scientists are as interested in fiction and literature as you are. You are, you know, if I recommend a book to you, you'll read it and bring it back to me and, and instruct <laughs> me if I got it wrong. So I love that. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Ken, for your explanation. Explanation, very helpful, very practical. Um, and if, if you're listening to this podcast and you didn't get it all, uh, that's why it's a podcast. You can click on it <laughs> and listen to it as, as many times as you need to, which I do sometimes. So thank you, Ken, for your thoughts on that. 
Uh, let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre, with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.